Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the first psalm in book four of the Psalter. Derek Kidner says helpfully here, in general, the psalms of book one, Psalm 1 to 41, tend to be personal. Those of books two and three, Psalms 42 to 89, to be national. And those of books four and five, Psalms 90 to 150, liturgical, i.e. concerned with the regular corporate praise of God, closed quote. Now, we don't know how precisely this psalm was used in the liturgy of the Old Testament church, but we do know that not too long ago, this psalm, along with 1 Corinthians 15, was appointed reading at most Christian funerals. It is a psalm about life and death under the gaze of Almighty God. The ascription reads as follows, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. J. Alec Matier says here, Who better than Moses could marvel at finding a home in God throughout generations of homelessness, i.e. the centuries of sojourn in Egypt, plus the desert years during which he watched a whole generation die out without fulfillment? The air of wistfulness in the psalm matches Moses' own sense of loss at being denied entrance to the promised land, closed quote. This does read like a psalm that could only have been written by Moses. It has three basic sections to it. There is a hymn of praise in verses 1 to 2, followed by a lament on the brevity and difficulty of human life in verses 3 to 12, and concluding with a plea for mercy and restoration in verses 13 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses understands that to live at all is to live in God. He is the fundamental reality. He is before creation and apart from creation. We live our lives, as it were, in the palm of his infinite hand. As Moses contemplates that reality, he is freshly aware of the transient and ephemeral nature of human life. Verse 3, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass, that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Even if a man should live for a thousand years, as Methuselah nearly did, it would seem to God as but a day. In comparison to the eternality of God, our human lives are like the grass of the field. We sprout up in the morning, and in the evening we fade and die. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Why is life so short, Moses is wondering. Why is it so hard? These are the things that his mind has turned to in these verses. And the answer, he concludes, is the wrath of God. At the end of the day, human beings live short and difficult lives for one simple reason. We have fallen away from God. Moses says that death has come into the world because of sin. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. It is God's anger that explains the human condition. God's anger, of course, is not the same as human anger. It is not emotional. It is judicial. God is holy. And having departed from him and rebelled against him, we are now outside his blessing and favor. We are under the curse, the Bible says. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the earth. Moses wrote about that in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 17 to 19, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that's why things are the way they are in this world. That's why nothing in this world works the way it should. That's why everything we do as human beings eventually ends in frustration and regret. That's a fundamental reality, Moses says, and yet. Who considers it? Who thinks, feels, and acts as he should in view of it? Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I've always appreciated the explanation of what it means to be wise in this world, provided by Trumper Longman III. He says in his commentary on Job, The wise are those who know how to navigate life. They avoid pitfalls and maximize success. If an obstacle comes their way, they know the quickest way out of the mess. Closed quote. You see, wisdom begins with understanding the nature of the problem. The nature of the problem, Moses says, is our estrangement from God and his consequent judicial wrath against us. That is the fundamental problem. And so wisdom is about knowing what can and ought to be done about that. And what we ought to do, obviously, is return to the Lord. And that is what the scriptures are chiefly about. The Bible tells us who God is, who we are, and how we may be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. In essence, the Bible tells us how to get a heart of wisdom. It tells us why things are the way they are and what has been done to make things right. The path of salvation is the path of wisdom. The Apostle Paul used that language in speaking to Timothy. He urged him to study the sacred writings which are able to make you wise 
for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Close quote. That's 2 Timothy 3.15. And that's why we read the Bible. We read the Bible to hear the voice of the Spirit within it saying, here is the path. Walk ye in it. True wisdom in the Bible consists of this. Knowing that God is holy, knowing that you are a sinner, knowing that sin and holiness cannot go together, and therefore knowing that there is absolutely no hope for you apart from the life, death, resurrection, and present intercession of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Of course, Moses doesn't have the fullness of that knowledge yet, and so he prays in faith on the basis of what he does know. We see him beginning to do that in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Calvin translates that last phrase, be pacified or propitious toward your servants. And that is the sense of it. In essence, Moses is praying in advance for the cross of Jesus Christ. And of course, that is how faith works in the Old Testament. To be clear, there, there are not two ways of being saved in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. There is only one way. Old Testament and New, people are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So from the very beginning, there has only been one way of salvation. The difference is not in how people are saved. The difference is in the direction that faith looks. In the Old Testament, faith looked forward to that which God will provide. The classic expression of that kind of faith was given by Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 8, when he said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Faith in the Old Testament is a faith that somehow, by grace, God will provide the means by which we may be reconciled to him. God will provide the lamb. God will make a way for our sins to be removed and for our hearts to be restored and for us to come home. But of course, they didn't have the details. They had shadow and anticipation, whereas we have substance and reality. So their faith looked forward and our faith looks back, but both of us, whether we realize it or not, are placing our hope in the body of Jesus Christ upon the cross. There we are made brothers. There we are made sisters. There is our faith, the faith of Abraham and also the faith of Moses. The body of Jesus on the cross was the answer to the prayer offered by Moses in Psalm 90. Return, O Lord. Be reconciled to your people. Be pacified. Be propitious. Be favorable. Somehow, some way toward your people. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As I mentioned in the introduction, verses 13 to 17 constitute the final section of Psalm 90. As you will recall, there was a hymn of praise in verses 1 to 2, a lament concerning the difficulty and brevity of life in verses 3 to 12, and then here we have this prayer for mercy and restoration in verses 13 to 17. 
The prayer itself has three components to it. In verse 13, there is a plea for reconciliation, as we already talked about. And then in verses 14 to 15, Moses prays for joy. Satisfy us, Lord. Make us glad, Lord. We want to rejoice in your goodness, Lord. And then in the final section of the prayer, Moses asks for continuity and perseverance. He knew what it was to have and then lose the blessings and the favor of the Lord. So he prayed that God would give it in a way that they could not forfeit it. Let us enjoy this salvation with our children, Lord. Let us see our work continue and grow and increase over time. That is true salvation. That is the blessing that is sought by all who are wise, all who understand God, all who mourn sin, and all who harbor in their souls the memory of Eden. Bring us back to your presence, Lord. Bring us back to joy. But first, Lord, change our hearts. Make it so that we will never leave. Make it so that we will never doubt. Make it so that we will only trust you and love you and serve you with our loved ones in perfect contentment forever. That is what Moses prayed for. That is what the wise of this world are seeking, and that is what can only be found in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.